For most people, Las Vegas is a neon-lit oasis. Where they go to escape from their day-to-day lives. To gamble in world-class casinos. To eat meals prepared by celebrity chefs. Or to enjoy performances from the biggest names in entertainment. But if you scratch the surface just a little bit, you'll find the stories that never made it onto the postcards. The stories that remain hidden behind the glitz and glamour of the Vegas Strip. It's the podcast that goes in-depth on the darker side of Vegas history. Sin City Stories. Vegas True Crime. From murder. To robbery. To arson. To bombings. Sin City Stories Vegas True Crime will take you far behind the headlines of the tales you're familiar with and bring you the never-before-heard stories that helped to shape the city of Las Vegas. Sin City Stories. Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Get more info at SinCityStoriesPod.com and follow Sin City Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. It's September 28th, 2000, in Georgetown, Indiana. At 9.22 p.m., 36-year-old former state police trooper David Cam has just arrived home from playing basketball with some friends at the local church gym. As he pulls up to his two-door garage, he notices something strange. His wife's vehicle is in the garage, but the door on the side she usually parks on is wide open. While she normally lowers the door after she arrives, David doesn't think too much of it, and he goes to open the garage door on the other side. As he steps closer to the garage, in the dim illumination of his car's headlights, on the floor near his wife's passenger side door, he sees something. Or rather, someone. At 9.26, David places the following call to Post 45 Indiana State Police. Inside David's garage, his wife Kim, his five-year-old daughter Jill, and his seven-year-old son Brad are all found dead. Each had been shot execution style. 36-year-old Kim's body was found on the floor by her front passenger door in a pool of blood. Her pants and shoes had been removed, but her underwear and shirt were still on. Jill, the five-year-old, was found slumped over in the vehicle's back seat. Her older brother, Brad, who was seven, was also found in the back seat, but was pulled onto the garage floor when David tried to resuscitate him. Not many of us can imagine the horror of pulling up to our own homes and finding such a brutal scene. As a father and a husband, David Cam was absolutely devastated when police arrived. So why does he end up being the prime suspect? Hi, strangers. 
Today's episode is such a massive case with so many twists and turns that it has to be told in two parts. On the surface, there are two possible villains of this tragic story. One, a complete stranger who invaded a home and took three lives for an unknown reason. Or two, a man who was supposed to be the protector of the house turned out to be hiding dark secrets from his family. This is part one of the Cam Family Massacre. Lock your doors and listen closely. This is Stranger in the House. David Cam was born March 23, 1964, in New Albany, Indiana. It's a rural area that feels like a small-town America from the past. David and his family lived on a road that was purchased by his grandfather, Amos, long before he was born. His family was well-known in the area, and a lot of his neighbors were his relatives. David had two older siblings, Donnie and Julie, and when he was one years old, his younger brother, Daniel, was born. His sister, Julie, described him as the quietest of the Cam siblings and a fiercely independent loner, as he was known to play outside by himself for hours. The Cam family's life revolved around the Georgetown Community Church, a church that had actually been founded by David's grandfather. His brother Donnie described the church as a huge part of their lives growing up. It was their community, and they got dressed up every Sunday to attend services. As mentioned, the Cam children had a lot of relatives living near them, and they were all extremely close growing up. David was especially close to his uncle Sam Lockhart, who said they spent a lot of one-on-one time together when he was young. David had a happy childhood by all accounts. He played basketball from a young age, and by eight years old, he wanted to be a minister. He struggled as a student, which his sister Julie said made him insecure in school. And while he was well-liked, David mostly kept to himself. According to his family, he didn't really date when he was younger, but at 18, he started to see a girl named Tammy. Soon after they started dating, Tammy got pregnant. Because his family was religious, they insisted that David and Tammy get married. And according to his family, this was a big deal because it meant that David could no longer become a minister like he had wanted. With Tammy four months pregnant, but still able to conceal her bump, she and David were married in November of 1982 at the Georgetown Church the very church that David had envisioned himself becoming a minister in. Tammy moved in with the Cam family after the wedding and eventually became bedridden during her pregnancy. Tammy and David didn't have a great marriage, according to some sources. Tammy had become depressed while she was bedridden, and the Cam suspected her of still being in touch with an ex-boyfriend, Jimmy, who was in the military abroad. Tammy ended up going into labor two and a half months premature, But the baby was fine, and David and Tammy named her Whitney. A baby, however, did not fix their marital problems. One former colleague of David said that David felt like he had missed out on the dating scene because he had married the first woman he had ever been with. This colleague said that David started to see other women behind Tammy's back. But according to David's mother, it was Tammy's close contact with her ex-boyfriend Jimmy that broke up the marriage. David's mother was quoted as saying, it broke his heart. And, quote, if he had been a man with a temper, he would have hit her. But instead, he went and hit his fists on an electric pole. 
end quote. After three years of marriage, Tammy and David divorced in 1986. Tammy eventually took full custody of Whitney and did end up marrying her ex-boyfriend, Jimmy. Around the time of Whitney's birth, David had decided to become a police officer to support his family. First, he was an auxiliary volunteer police officer, and then over the two years after his divorce, he studied hard to be accepted by the Indiana State Police. In 1988, a friend of David set him up on a blind date with a young woman named Kimberly Wren, and apparently it was love at first sight. Kimberly Wren was born on March 14, 1964, in New Albany, Indiana. She had actually went to the same high school as David, but they hadn't officially met until their first date. Kim's mother, Janice, described her as quiet, shy, and withdrawn. She said she tended to keep her burdens and her secrets to herself. Aside from their mutual shyness, Kimberly seemed like she was the complete opposite of David in high school. Academics came easy to her, and she was involved with many clubs and was even a runner-up for prom queen. After she graduated, she began taking accounting courses and was soon introduced to David. Kimberly had always dreamed of starting her own family one day. If there's anyone who wanted to get married, have 2.5 kids and a white picket fence, that was Kim, says Debbie Wren, Kim's sister. By 1989, Kim had taken the first step to making her dreams of having a family come true by marrying David. Both Kim and David's family were excited for the union. After marrying, David was soon accepted into the Indiana State Police. He impressed his superiors with his hard work and love for the job. And Kim got an accounting job that she had to commute 30 miles away to every day. But it was worth it because she was making twice what David made. All the insecurity that David had felt in his younger years was quickly replaced with confidence when he became a state trooper. His chief at the time said he was even a little cocky. But he was good at his job. And in his second year, he was even handpicked for an emergency response team. With both Kim and David's busy schedules, the two barely saw each other. And that's when David began to stray. David was known to flirt with attractive women when he pulled them over, and even other women on the force said he was known to make advances towards them. David later said that this type of behavior was commonplace on the force, and that many of his co-workers would boast about their affairs even though they were married. David loved the attention he would get from women as an officer and liked to talk about the phenomenon of badge bunnies, women who liked officers. In 1991, David began to have an affair with a new recruit named Shelley Romero that he was supervising during a training program. David claimed that their affair only lasted five or six weeks, but Romero says they were together on and off for two years, ending their affair in 1993. Now, while David was having his affair with Romero, and allegedly several other women as well, Kim had no idea, and she was excited to start a family with David. In the summer of 1992, David and Kim were planning on having a baby, and while they were both very excited, David would begin an affair that would almost break them up for good. David had started to see a woman named Stephanie McCarthy, who worked at his gym. At this time, Kim was pregnant with their eldest son, Brad. Brad was born February 1st, 1993. After his birth, Kim went back to her busy work schedule right away, and David was still working long hours. 
So Kim and David's mothers spent most of the time watching Brad. While David did have to work odd hours, sometimes he wasn't actually working them when he told Kim he was. He would instead be taking Stephanie McCarthy on dates. Now, Stephanie knew he was married, but David had told her that he was unhappy and thinking about divorcing Kim. So Stephanie thought they might have a future. That's when David found out Kim was pregnant again. Stephanie said that when David called her to tell her about the news, he was emotionless and called it bad timing. With a new baby on the way, Stephanie broke up with David. But their breakup didn't last long, and they soon got back together, and now David was starting to make his affair obvious. So much so that five-month pregnant Kim confronted him. He told Kim that, yeah, he was having an affair, and he no longer wanted to be married to her. Kim, in tears, grabbed baby Brad and left for her parents' house. The next day, Kim went back to the house that she shared with David and told him he had to leave. Later that day, David called his mother to tell her what he had done and asked to move in with his parents until he found a place. But his mother was furious with him and refused to let him move back in. When his mother refused to support him, David lost it. His mother heard him start to smash things and completely destroy his own kitchen. She was so startled by his reaction that she actually called the police to send someone over to calm him down. When police arrived, David was embarrassed and insisted that his mother had overreacted and he was not a danger to anyone. An official police report was never filed. Kim and David moved into different apartments and David continued to see Stephanie. But almost all of David's family sided with Kim and constantly encouraged him to go back to her. David spent Christmas of that year with his girlfriend while his parents spent their holiday with Kim. Kim was clearly devastated, but she rarely talked about her feelings with anyone, keeping it all to herself. On February 28, 1995, Kim gave birth to a baby girl named Jill. David did not come to the hospital. A month after Jill was born, David's girlfriend Stephanie went to her ex-boyfriend's to drop something off at his house. When she didn't return when she said she would, David panicked. So he figured out where her ex-boyfriend lived and called the house, demanding that she come home. When she arrived back at their apartment complex, David was waiting for Stephanie outside. She explained to him that she and her ex were just talking and nothing had happened. But David didn't seem to believe her story, and to her horror, he pulled a gun out of his pocket and pointed it at his own chest. He was threatening to, quote, end it all. And it took several attempts by Stephanie to calm him down and put the gun away. After they went inside, David put down the gun and Stephanie told him they could no longer see each other. She had already felt bad about the new baby and the gun was the last straw. She immediately packed up her things and left. Hours later, David called up Kim and they quickly reconciled. Everyone, including David's own family, was surprised that Kim had taken him back. But Kim said she loved him and that was enough reason for her. Now, David never told his family why he and Stephanie really broke up. In fact, he told them that he left her because he said, no joke, he had a vision from God telling him to go back to his family. Kim and David eventually moved into a new house directly across from his grandfather's in Georgetown, where David was once again surrounded by family. The new house was also a three-minute drive from the Georgetown Community Church. David and Kim would soon become regulars there, and 
from the view of the community, David and Kim had completely reconciled, and David was a devoted husband to his wife and father to his kids. Kim continued to work her full-time job and was eventually promoted, and David remained with the Indiana State Police. Now, despite appearances and his apparent vision from God, David once again strayed. He made advances towards a new recruit, Lori Rumpf, who he was training in firearms. According to Lori, he tried to kiss her when they were out together after work, but she turned him down. David was apparently upset, and the news of his rejection spread, but no one from the force was surprised. David was a known flirt, and most of the women he worked with expected him to make advances towards them. One even saying that they expected him to wink and maybe touch their leg under a table because that was the norm from him. This is how Kim and David lived. They would work their jobs, take care of their kids, go to church, all while David was womanizing on the side. Through the years, he would have several more affairs with different women, seemingly pursuing any and every woman he found attractive. Throughout some of his affairs, women have claimed that he's made some strange comments regarding young girls. A woman named Michelle said that he asked her to shave her pubic hair and made a comment right before they had sex about how he had to try and not feel like he was doing this with a six-year-old. Two other women mentioned that when he first met them, he told them that he assumed they were teenagers. While making out with one of the women in his police car, he said he felt a little worried about kissing her because she was his daughter's age. She asked how old his daughter was, and he said 16, which prompted her to tell him that she was actually 23. While these comments seem strange and, frankly, gross, they don't mean that he actually did anything wrong. Or do they? Because we will see that these comments come back to haunt David. In January of 1999, David Cam and two other troopers got in some trouble. They were in a high-speed chase with a 19-year-old motorist. When they got the car to stop, a police camera in David's car recorded one of the other troopers pulling the kid onto the ground and brutally kicking him. The 19-year-old later sued David and the two others for assault, and the footage from the police cam ran on news stations for weeks. After an investigation, David was exonerated and officially cleared of any wrongdoings. But his reputation took a major hit within the community and the police department. After he was cleared of the charges, he applied to become a detective, but was rejected. With his police career on the decline, in January of 2000, David's uncle Sam Lockhart offered him a job as a part-time salesman at his successful waterproofing company. His uncle Sam was known to hire family members and knew that David was looking for a higher-paying job. David agreed to do some part-time work, and by March of 2000, he had decided to leave the police force and work full-time for his uncle. Before he left the police department, however, he made sure to tell his superiors everything he felt that they were doing wrong and made it clear that he was leaving because he felt the department underperformed. It was clear that David had felt betrayed by the way he was treated by his fellow officers during and after the lawsuit. With David's new job, he had a much more flexible schedule. He made his own hours and usually worked four days a week. Kim's job, on the other hand, continually kept her busy. In June of 2000, Kimberly called her friend who lived in Florida to discuss a possible visit with the kids. During this call, she said that David's career change had been stressful on the family and they needed a vacation. 
On the call, the friend also alleges that Kim complained about how busy she was all the time and how David was not pulling his weight with the kids. Around mid-August of 2000, Kim's mother noticed that Kim was preoccupied and upset about something. But in typical Kim fashion, she didn't talk about what was bothering her. One day in early September, Kim called her friend in Florida again. And something was off. Her friend described Kim as off and depressed. And it seemed like Kim didn't want to get off the phone with her. They were having normal conversations, but Kim would just keep bringing up new topics, which was very unlike her because she wasn't very talkative. At one point, the friend just gave in and asked, is something wrong? Or is she and David having issues again? According to this friend, Kim said sadly, history is repeating itself. But she refused to elaborate. Kim promised that she was going to see her friends soon and was going to book flights for the upcoming weekend. This was also odd to her friend because it seemed unlike Kim to take Brad and Jill out of school at the beginning of September for a vacation. She was concerned for Kim and felt there was a more pressing reason for the trip. But unfortunately, that call would be the last time she ever talked to Kim again. According to David Cam, on September 28, 2000, the Cam family had a typical morning. Kim got Brad and Jill ready for school, and David went to the local store to get some breakfast. Around 7.10 a.m., David left for work, telling Kim that he was going to be playing basketball at the church gym that night. It was a normal routine, David said. I kissed her goodbye and told Brad and Jill, bye, have a good day. Kim took her kids to school, dropped Brad's swim trunks and towel off at her mother's house because her mother was going to pick him up from school and watch him until Kim came to take him to a swimming lesson later. Kim left her mother's house for work at 8 a.m. By all accounts, Kim had a normal day at work, and she left her office around 4 p.m. to pick up Jill from school so she could take her to her dance class. They arrived at the class at 3.35, and Kim sat with the other mothers on a bench while Jill took her class. A woman named Sydney Mattingly, whose five-year-old was in the class with Jill, said that she and Kim talked a while. At one point, they started talking about their husbands, and Kim told Sydney that she was expecting David to be home around 7 to 7.30 p.m. After the class finished at 5.30, Kim and Jill left to go pick up Brad from his grandmother's house. At 5.30 p.m., Kim arrived at her mother's house to take Brad to a swim class. Her mother said that everything was normal with Kim, and she seemed like she was in a good mood that evening. At 5.45 p.m., Kim took Jill and Brad to a junior high school nearby, where Brad had his swim practice. At 7 p.m., Brad was finished with his lesson, and he, Jill, and Kim walked out of the parking lot. She buckled both her kids into the back seat and drove off, heading home. And that was the last time anyone saw the three of them alive. David Cam left his office just before 5 p.m. that day. As he drove home, he pulled off at an emergency stopping area on the parkway to make some business calls, since he knew he would get some good cell service around there. He was waiting on two calls from different crew leaders. While he sat there, he had a call with a client named Lisa Brown. She was having tile work done by his company, and he was thinking about purchasing a pool table from her. Over the phone, he told Lisa that he still needed to show Kim the table before purchasing it. At 5.20 p.m., David finished his calls and drove home. About 10 minutes later, he arrived home, and before going inside, he talked to one of his uncles, who was across the street at the time. 
They spoke for a few minutes, and then David went inside and took something for a migraine he had. He laid down for about 20 minutes while the medicine took effect. After that, he changed out of his work clothes and went to his computer to check his stocks. At 6.30, David says that a food delivery truck arrived. The driver, Robert Steiner, usually came about twice a month to drop off some food and take the next order from the Cam family. Robert said that he usually dealt with Kim, but that day, David invited him in and made some orders from the catalog. He ordered ham, cheese omelets, and jalapeno peppers, which, according to David, Kim really enjoyed. As Robert completed the order and walked back to his van, David mentioned to him that he had to be at the church to play basketball by 7 that night. He explained that his family played there on Thursday nights. Robert left at 6.45, and David got ready to go play basketball. A little before 7, as Kim and the kids are leaving the pool, David says he left for the game, locked the front door, and drove the three miles to the Georgetown Community Church. Once at the church, David waited for his cousin to arrive to open the doors with several other guys in the parking lot. Once inside, the players spent about 10 minutes warming up. Once David's uncle and boss, Sam Lockhart, arrived, they split up into teams of five. The first game took about 15 minutes. They all took a short break before returning for the second game. Details about the next two hours vary a little, according to witness testimonies, but the one thing that all the witnesses say is that none of them remember David Cam leaving the gym at any point during the games. Everyone took a lengthy break around 8.45, and since many of the players also worked for Sam Lockhart at his company, they discussed work. And at 9.15, they officially called it a night with David allegedly joking that Kim was going to kill him for coming home so late. The church's alarm was set at 9.22 after everyone had exited. David got in his car and drove the three miles home. At exactly 9.30 p.m., David's frantic call to the Indiana State Police comes in. Indiana State Police Radio, Patrice, can I help you? Patrice, it's Dave Cam. Let me talk to Post Command right now. Okay, he's on another line. Right now, let me talk to Post Command. When David finds his family, oddly, he doesn't call 911, which would have put him through to the local New Albany police. Instead, David calls Post 45 Indiana State Police, which was located more than three times the distance of the local department from David's house. David later explained that he called Post 45 because he considered it more professional than the New Albany Police. As a side note, if you recall, when David left the state police, he made it very clear that he believed the state police was underperforming and not doing their jobs. So it seems odd to me that he considered them more professional than the local police. All units were rushed to the scene, and two troopers, Detective Sean Clemens and Trooper Robert Halbert, who had previously worked with David on the force, drove to the scene after they heard the priority call to their former colleague's house. At 9.45, Clemens and Halbert arrived at the cam house. There were many other officers there already. They saw a distraught David on his knees, gripping the tailgate of his car that was parked in the driveway. When they entered the garage, what they saw horrified them. Right away, they could see the blood-soaked bodies of Brad and Kim lying on the floor of the garage. Kim was lying on her back, and she had been shot execution-style in the head. She was by the front passenger door to her vehicle. Her pants had been removed. She had several abrasions and bruises on her arms and a smear of blood above the waist of her underwear. 
David said that Brad had felt warm when he discovered him in the car. So he pulled him out of the back seat and tried to resuscitate him on the ground. The bullet had hit Brad's left shoulder and exited his right, severing his spine in the process. In the back seat of Kim's car, slumped over and still buckled in, was Jill, also dead from a shot to the head. Clemens and Halpert entered the house through the garage door, finding it unlocked. As they walked through the house, they noticed that the glass French doors in the kitchen were still locked, and nothing in the house seemed disturbed. They swept the entire home, and Clemens noticed that David's computer was still on. As he headed back to the garage, he checked the front door to find it was still locked and not tempered with. There was no sign of the killer or killers anywhere in the house. A few hours later, David was able to calm down and tell the police his version of the night's events. He said that when he arrived home from the basketball game, he saw that Kim had left one of the doors to the garage open, which was odd. As he entered the garage, he said he noticed something on the floor, and that's when he saw Kim. He saw blood running out of the garage from her body, and at first, he thought she had fallen and hurt her head. But once he got a good look at her, he realized she had been shot. He then went looking for Brad and Jill. He said he checked Jill and knew that she was gone. But he said that Brad still felt warm, so he pulled him out of the car and tried to perform CPR. He says that before he started to perform CPR, he ran into the house and thought about calling 911. But he said he didn't want to deal with a dispatcher when he had direct access to the state police. After he alerted police, he said he went back to do CPR on his lifeless son. Cam told police that he wished he went to the swim practice instead of playing basketball because he felt like someone was lying in wait for Kim and the kids. When the police asked him why he thought that, he said... I think someone was after me. After more questions, detectives eventually take David's clothes to look at for DNA evidence. They assure David that they're taking them to clear him of the crime. David left the police station at 2 a.m. with his brother Donnie to get some rest. But back at the cam house, the crime scene investigation was just getting underway. News of this horrific crime spread quickly through the small town that housed many of David Cam's relatives. On October 1st, three days after the murders, a memorial was held. The community gathered to mourn the loss of Kim, Jill, and Brad at the Georgetown Community Church, the very church that David's grandfather had founded all those years ago and where David was playing basketball the night his family was murdered. David's father made a special spot for his grandchildren's memoriam in the church's garden. It was a somber day that was only going to get darker. Because three hours after the memorial, David Cam was arrested for the murder of Kimberly, Jill, and Brad Cam. But this story is far from over. In part two, we will discuss the forensic evidence found at the crime scene, David Cam's multiple trials, and the new suspect whose DNA was found at the crime scene. This is the end of part one. This episode was written by Alexa Morrissey, researched by Victoria Cox, and produced by Michael Morrissey, John Scassia, and Heidi Sherman. Stranger in the House is a Boy Wonder production. All our sources for this episode will be linked in the bio and on our website, strangerinthehouse.com. But a special thanks to the book One Deadly Night, A State Trooper, Triple Homicide, and A Search for Justice by John Glatt. 
reporting by Charlie White for the Indianapolis Star, and articles for Wave3.com. You can follow us at StrangerInTheHouse.com, at underscore StrangerInTheHouse on Instagram and TikTok, and at underscore StrangerPod on Twitter. Stay safe, strangers, and listen to part two now. If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history— Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects, and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind, to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there in the dark.